How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 130. It takes a few takes, that doesn't was, it? That, that might be the worst intro I've ever done. We've had a show. couple of bad ones. I don't know. I don't think I've had to restart my How's It Going <laughs> before. It's hard. Not once, not twice, but three times. It's hard to get a good How's It Going. But, um, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I thought at this point, you'd think 130 episodes in, I would just have it naturally off the top of my... Uh, off the top of my tongue, it would just come okay. out. I sometimes don't even know what episode it is when I start the intro. <laughs> like, you just go for it, yeah. Just go for it. You take... sort of whip it out, as one character says exactly. in, the, in the movie, Get Smart, which is a great movie. I don't care what anyone says. There you go. Um, How are you, Jake? <laughs> I'm good. I'm tired. I, you know it's what? been generally tired. I had a, you know, I too had quite, uh, I'm quite tired myself. Mm. Um, I've had a big couple of days, so... Uh, but That's ready to get jumped into... Talking about films? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. I'm ready to get jumped into Zeke. Let's do it. Um, <laughs> like a good old, a good old sumo wrestle. Yeah, Just maybe I need another coffee or fourteen <laughs> before this. Um, all right, yeah, let's get straight into it. I guess right, let's kick so. off with our now our film trivia segment for the film of the week. Yeah, um, which is the 1931 uh, film Frankenstein. Never heard of it. <laughs> um i'll i'll get kick us off then i thought this right. was a really interesting um little fun fact because obviously this film we now deem as a horror film right um but technically uh not conceived first on its release as a horror movie since the term horror as a film genre was first used in 1934 mm. three years after this film's uh, conception, basically, which I find really intriguing. Yeah, this was definitely, upon my research, this definitely seemed like the kind of film that was a part of inventing the genre mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, where you had like Dracula before it, and then we can definitely get into some of the more German horror films that probably wouldn't have been called horror at the time. But, um, you know, it, had, it has its style that we now associate with horror. Mm-hmm. But you're right, I thought it was interesting. Well, speaking of horrifying your audiences, my trivia of the week talks about how this film, of course, came with many a controversial feelings and opinions and um, a lot of risky things that people hadn't really seen done in film up until this point. Uh, but ironically, the things that actually did end up being altercated or changed for various releases are mm-hmm. some of the more tame things from in terms of our standpoint this time of year, or this time of year, of course, this time of our, you know, century i guess <laughs> that's what we're actually talking about and uh, some of the things i'm talking about is the scene when maria gets dumped into a lake there's actually a pretty jarring cut in some of the versions and it was only a few decades ago that they actually retrieved the shot of her physically being thrown into the lake for so that was a uh, deemed too much at the time mm. uh, as well as the line the famous line now i know what it feels like to be god was considered quite blasphemous at the time and there are many tv versions of this film that completely cut the line entirely so it's a good line though yeah it's yeah. a great line yeah um that's how really, dare they cut it it is a, i mean obviously <laughs> uh, the interesting thing when we talk about film as a, as a history and particularly these you know genric evolutions is someone always had to be the first you know creator of whatever um genre we're talking about or to take those risks so if this wasn't done by frankenstein or dracula in the same year yeah it would have been done in a latter year which i'm sure you know when we touch on a bit of james wales work in mm. you know the you know mid to late 30s um we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the other films that he kind of pushed into this genre too so yeah. um it's it's really interesting to think that 
Um, I think similar. There were similar reactions to certain elements, even in the King Kong uh, nineteen thirty film, if I recall. They, they had some mm. issues and controversial mm. scenes. I can that. check that for you. Thirty or thirty. My guess that. would be thirty-three. I think you might be right. It is thirty-three. There Look at go. that. Yeah, King Kong. Um, so, and uh, you know, we're going to touch on a bit more of the obviously where this places, obviously in in cinema a little later in the show. So mm. we'll probably abstain from talking about that too much but my question to you zeke is it on the 1100 films you must watch poster oh it's gotta be it is it's gotta be (laughs) but thankfully being the last film from our decades challenge of the year hopefully from now on uh it gets a bit more it gets a little less obvious because we're we're not specifically picking classics i think i'm gonna be safe with next week's choice (laughs) Take yes on that one. Yeah, a bit uh, of a trick question that one will be. Um, yeah. yeah, but you know, speaking of some of the films that may not feature on that list, mm. Jake, have you caught anything else during the week? Oh, wait, you anything wanted to talk else? about something. You wanted to talk about something else, didn't you? Before, the- yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a few notes I wanted to bring up before we get into our films of the week. I watched a couple of things. A lot of it related to Frankenstein, but okay. I'll get into that in a moment. Some of the things I wanted to talk about. I wanted to give a quick shout out and rest in peace to Richard Donner. Who passed away? I think in the last week. I think by last week's episode, he hadn't passed away yet. He, of course, is the director of The Goonies, the first two Superman films, the Lethal Weapon films, and Scrooged, which I still haven't seen myself yet. But um, yeah, fantastic director who will be missed. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out to Chris Struckman. He did not die, <laughs> he's still alive. Um, but he actually did a video recently talking about his first feature film he's now developing called Sherby o- Oaks. Mm-hmm. Um, Shelby Oaks, that's it. I'm not going to mispronounce it again. Um, so I guess we want to give a bit, bit of a shout out to him because he's someone who does a lot of you know film reviews on YouTube mm-hmm. and made it big. And you know he's finally crossed that threshold. He's done some shorts, I believe, and now he's doing his first proper funded feature, which is very exciting. And it sounds like it's like a contract. Like he's been hired to direct the story. He didn't like write the script himself, that's as far very, as I understand. That's pretty exciting. Um, so that is very excited for him. And lastly, but not least, we talked last week, Zeke about the Padme decoy in the Star Wars prequels. And we both said, we thought it, we thought that it was a household name. The person mm-hmm. who plays the decoy turned out to be like a pretty prolific actress in themselves. Yes. The decoy from episode one is, in fact, Kira Knightley. So Really? There you go. Some early action for Kira Knightley in Star Wars prequels. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But then Rose <laughs> Byrne was... was on the casting of, of Attack of the Clones too, wasn't it? That was oh, like yeah, the, it was something like that. We have to find out who Rose but that's Byrne ep- was. that's episode two, so maybe she was the decoy of that film. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting, eh? Very fascinating. I knew. I thought I knew that as well. I just didn't know it was Kira Knightley, but that makes a lot of sense. But I don't yeah. know how you did it, but you somehow managed to bring Star Wars back to the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, every time, Zeke. Every time. I wonder what will be the next Star Wars thing that we talk about on the show. I mean, I, I think I've it's not going to be anything new. It's not going to be because anything I'm, new. I mean, with the Bad Batch stuff, it, it's great to have that show. Um, it's probably going to be the next Mandalorian season, I imagine, will be the thing we talk about next mm. on the show. But, you know, with the Bad Batch stuff, it's like I've been watching every week's episode, but, you know, um, unfortunately, since you haven't really seen a lot of that right. sort of style of the show, like those particular, like Rebels or Clone Wars, then... Yeah. Makes it kind of tough to talk about it, and also it's like well, most weeks I don't really have too much to say 
right. on it. Well, like, we I don't think we've ever really we've talked about like seasons of television shows and like we talked about our feelings on the BoJack finale, for example. But we've never gone like episode to episode in depth discussion on each episode of a show. We've never oh, yeah, gone that in depth before. Sure. So, um, so it's not out of the realm for you not to have talked about each individual episode, yeah. for example. It's been good. It's been yeah. good. Like. I didn't expect anything. I, I don't think I th- thought it was amazing. Like, I don't think I thought of it. You know, there are 11 episodes in now, and I don't think it's like... There are 11 episodes in? Yeah. It's been 11 weeks. It has been 11 weeks. Jesus, all right. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. It goes quick. Yeah. Um, but it's like, obviously, and we're coming up on, is this technically the last episode of Loki coming out this week? In the um, end, the next week, I think. Yeah, so that's going <clears> to... <throat> wow, that timed really well. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so and we're going to probably go through and do a real digest on those first three shows next week on the show mm. more critically. So um, I think it's it, it, it's interesting with, with shows right now. It's a weird space. I don't think... This is just my professional, uh, my own opinion on this. Your professional I, opinion. I don't know why I said professional <laughs> opinion. Um, my own opinion on that. I really think I've quite struggled with show. I think we really, I think a couple of years ago, we really hit a golden age of, of television. Mm. And it's been a bit of a lull, in my opinion, which is funny because I feel like there's more content than ever that's come out in the last uh, year or two um, in terms of serialized formats more, right. than, more than obviously television shows and I don't know. I just don't think we've we've really hit the the heights as what we were hitting, you know, back in like 2015 to 17 that sort of time. Yeah, maybe it's tough because, frankly, neither of us really watch a lot of the shows that are you know the big hitters at the Emmys, for example, like Succession. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I watched Euphoria recently, but other than Zendaya, that that wasn't really like a huge award winner per se. Um, you know, like I think about those shows, and yeah, like the um, Mandalorian was in there too. But in terms of what people are saying is like the peak TV, we're not really watching a lot of those shows. We're sort of watching mm-hmm. the, I mean, the stuff that appeals to us more. Um, yeah. Like I need to watch Succession. Like I know I do. The Crown. I know I need to watch that stuff. But it's it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just putting the outlier in there that may, maybe we're just not seeing the gold tier of television that's currently coming out. Potentially, potentially. I'd say Westworld's probably been the thing that I've stuck. With. Oh so yeah, that, that's it, up there. I would say that's definitely that is an up there TV show, um, but I've predominantly been watching movies. Yeah. And no, well, we both do. <laughs> ran the course on that stuff. Um, so I guess if we move into our what we've watched in the last week, um, mm. I was saying to you this before the show started was I seem to front load my weeks with a lot of watching and then yeah. very much dip off when the weekend rolls around. Um, this week being quite prominent in that, I watched between I think it was the fifth. The fifth and the sixth, I watched like eight films, which is crazy. <laughs> um, Keep them busy. To think about. Um, so we're going to start with. I'm kind of think how we're going to put these together. I'll put out um, sort of the soft core rom com, like light comedy stuff first. Let's go. Okay, with that. that's what you mean by soft core. Yeah, okay, like good. Soft, soft good. core comedy. Okay, good. Um, <laughs> so it's worried there for a minute. And all of these, all of them sit on very similar ratings, um, just kind of good, seldom good okay. ratings, the happy three-star medium. Um, so It's a good place to be, the three-star. I watched Love and Other Drugs for the first time. Oh, yeah. I thought um, it was actually quite entertaining. Gets really dark in some parts, mm. like really quite, not as, that one's probably one of the more, hits harder, but I mean, at the end of the, like, in parts, it's quite 
quite like, wow, this is quite heavy. Okay. Um, and then secedes up and down. It's a bit of a strange pairing, I think, like Anne Hathaway and uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. It's it's kind of strange seeing them in a... Particularly Jake Gyllenhaal in <laughs> yeah, that, that softer comedy romance role. Yeah. Um, we don't see him do lighthearted all that much. Yeah. I think a lot of people were surprised even in when he did Spider-Man. He was a bit more fun in that. Yeah. You know, he's not, he's not you know, filming people driving in the poles and <laughs> Nightcrawler or anything like that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and I think it's, for her, it was it was probably about right at that sort of time, especially 2010, you know. She's coming off things like, yeah, Devil Wears Prada and stuff, which we talked about a couple of weeks on the show. We go on the show and, yeah, it was a good film. Mm. Um, two that kind of pair well together, I think, uh, are Late Night, which is Nisha Ganatra's, uh, I believe it's a, you know, it's a, one of her works and, that kind of was a, it was an, you know, um, I'm just going to get it up here. Uh, you know, it's a, it basically follows the story of a, like a late night host as she goes through a, a lull and the sort of partner duo comedy between uh, mm. Emma Thompson and Mindy Kaling. Oh, Kaling. Kaling. Mindy Kaling. From, uh, from The Office. From The Office. Yeah. Um, so, great pairing. They have, uh, you know, obviously, um, Kaling is a naturally quite a funny person and it was yeah. nice seeing Emma Thompson in a more drier sort of comedic right. role. I know she can do it quite well too. So it's it was it, it was a perfectly fine pairing. There was nothing really Yeah. Uh, nothing any like jaw-droppingly amazing. You weren't laughing all the time, but you, it was never not f- like nice. And it flowed well and it didn't right. overstay its welcome. Solid strong 90 minutes. I think it's just oh sorry, it's just uh, just over 100 minutes. So okay. really doesn't it's efficient, I yeah. think, is is the best way of saying it. And it's one of those sort of films that comes out, you know, it's got a little bit of money behind it, it's got a good premise, it's a different premise, and it was pretty just entertaining for the most mm. part. You know, very easy watch. Um, over to one that's a bit more interesting. This has just come out on Netflix. This is uh, good okay. on good on paper. Okay. Um, and then I'm gonna throw it throw it to you if you've got stuff you'd like to add to this section. I know you you oh, watch a lot of director corner stuff. Yeah, yeah. Most of the stuff I watched is from the thirties. Okay. So, <laughs> so it doesn't fit with the last week on Netflix. Okay. <laughs> Time wise. Well, this one was really interesting. This is called. Um, this is by Kim Gatewood. Um, Let me look this up. It's called. Uh, I think this is her first feature film, judging by the uh, other two things she's got on Letterbox. Yep, this is her first. It's a feature debut. Nice. Uh, it's called Good on Paper. And I'll just read the the logline for this one. After years of putting her career ahead of love, stand-up comic Andrea Singer has stumbled upon the perfect guy. On paper, he checks all the boxes, but is everything what it appears to be? Um, And apparently this was partially based on um, uh, a true story um, of a sort of a comedian being as they put it in the actual film. Uh, Instead of being catfished, it's, it's scuttlefished. It's this guy that appears... Like, um, he's the perfect guy, he's well-accomplished and well-established, but he's really just lying through his teeth. Right. It's an interesting sort of reverse hustle kind of film. Um, I would really like to... It's sitting on a pretty average rating on, on yeah, Letterboxd it's sort right of now. spiking in the, the one and a half, two, two and a half star rating, now, which is pretty harsh. I find this stuff quite frustrating because you've got to have a couple of things. Like, this film has a significantly lower budget than the film I was just talking about. Um, and there are there are giveaways of that, um, and the, I guess the film does struggle in parts because the the, the plot is 
probably got a couple of pacing issues. It definitely, in the latter stages, um, sort of drags on a little bit. But um, I, I, I think um, it's obviously stand-up comedian um, Eliza, who that's just her bill when she goes on it. She's quite funny. Mm. Um, I've watched, I think, three or four of her specials and for the most part found her stuff very entertaining. Um, and the performances are pretty solid. They're relatively, from an acting point of view, quite unknown. But we are seeing more and more stand-up comedians get major roles. Yeah, well, you Pete know. Davison's climbing up the ladder Pete as well. Pete Davison, you know, Bill Burr's getting a, you know quite a lot of on-screen stuff. Like it's definitely become quite a thing. And actually, her character in the story is this established stand-up comedian trying to break into the acting game. Mm. Um, and it seems to be where they're going with particularly. Com- comedic caper films because i think they can bring a level of authenticity to it um particularly in their kind of comedic wit and yeah. of course she brings that quite well and it's cool that i'm opening this up and yeah she has done stand-up so it's not like they just picked a random person this is someone yeah. who's doing stand-up who's playing sort of a meta role from the looks of it yeah it was a very grounded well-casted role and i i, I don't really know where the critiques are coming from from this film because uh, like I said in the log line, it essentially that pretty much sums it up. He's he's not like the most um, mesmerizing Chris Hemsworth looking guy. In fact, he's quite mm-hmm. the opposite. He's 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 a kind you know, and, and her character who narrates quite a bit does make those comments that he's not like athletically quite built. He's he's just really nice as a person, uh, and of course he's. Obviously not. He's a bit of a scumbag, but mm. you don't figure that out until latter parts of the film. And I actually think it was quite a solid film. Once again, it doesn't overstay its welcome. A ninety sharp ninety-two minutes, so it's mm. even uh, even sharper. And I think there's probably a little bit in there that's um, pretty average. I mean, it's really like there's some couple of scenes that are a little wonky and a little, but then there are others that are quite entertaining to kind of balance out i think for the important thing that i like about this story is she's not at the top of her game in terms of stand-up comedy she's she's as she jokes she's quite well regarded in the nation and it actually Mm. intercuts the story with her doing a stand-up routine which i thought was quite cool from a a sort of plot she's almost using the stand-up routine to tell the story right okay and which um, I find quite entertaining because I like when one of, some of my favourite stand-up comedy is when they just comedians tell stories um, and the way that they tell the story. It's a really good plot-driving device. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's really interesting because it's like, you know, when you're starting to break into that sort of more wealthy, more self-sufficient sort of level of, of stardom, there probably would be um, guys and or girls trying to um, cling on to that. Mm-hmm. Um obviously, you know, and this guy is just one of those, you know, sort of a, a representative of that body of people that are just trying to use someone else's fame to sort of jettison themselves into some sort of materialistic comfort. And mm. um, it's, it is interesting. It is very interesting. Um, I actually think it's a, a good film. Um, okay. And I'm... But I, I actually liked quite a few films this week that have been absolutely panned on Letterboxd. And, I, and this is my, <laughs> this is the one problem we have talked about um, grading on, on the show as being quite a, f- a... I think we're about to have a conversation that we actually had right. off air um, with two films that I watched. They gave the same rating. <laughs> um, I did jokingly yell at you. But we'll get into it, but yeah. Yeah, and um, I think this one falls into that category of it's not got as much money behind it. And you can kind of see that sometimes with 
sort of the wonkier camera movements and and some of the limited uh, settings. Like you can tell it's that tier, a couple of tiers, but it's not like like what I was talking about with bad match, like really low budget. Or we, yeah, but like it's a you know it's clearly not the um, got the biggest amount of money behind it, and that's right. okay because um, I think the writing well enough makes up for it. Um, so, so I'm guessing the film you're referring to is The Tomorrow War. Yes. <laughs> which recently released on Prime. Um, it did, yeah. Mm. And from, I think someone said it was, two, is it 200 million behind or something? It was something Jesus absurdly. Christ. It was a lot of money. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. Uh, so this film, um, and comparatively, I, I, I actually really enjoyed Tomorrow War, and it's getting critically panned on letterbox particularly mm. and and this is where my problem is sometimes with particularly letterbox's community compared to something like and even this does play a lot into rotten tomatoes too but at least rotten tomatoes has the audience score and the the critic score which i think is an interesting right. sort of consideration we have to have i i mean you know, obviously we're on this show being critiquing and talking about stuff and mm. we've sometimes been way harsher than what the general public thinks. Yeah, well, we have, we have those. I mean, my, my review, we're going to talk about, obviously, Frankenstein later. <clears throat> my grade for the sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, is astronomically lower than the average, mm-hmm. um, which we can get into. But yeah, we don't align with the letterboxed average score every time. No, exactly. You can't, yeah. And, and for me, I saw Tomorrow War as, kind of knew what I was coming into. Um, I was like, this is going to be, this is, predominantly it's going to be a dumb action film mm-hmm. and i think there were a couple of things like you know edge of tomorrow was critically praised and audiences really liked it mm. i really liked um edge of tomorrow i did i thought it fell apart a little bit in the last act me personally thought i didn't like the last act that much um and i didn't think it was amazing amazing um I thought it was kind of probably the best sort of action blockbuster of that last decade. Obviously, we're in a new decade now. Mm. And I think this is a really strong uh, start. You know, if we look back on this type of genre and particularly this narrow scope of genre, this action blockbuster, you know, this is the kind of film that would have seriously benefited from a cinematic run because it's just a cinematic film. You know, it's got big cast in it. It's got like some strong, you know, strong actors in it. Enough billing there alone. Um, The premise, you know, it's got a very Independence Day feel. Um, That's how I like the original one, not the new one. Um, Sort of those kinds of films where it's like we we look back at Independence Day and we go, oh, it's cheesy. But, you know, know, it's cheesy. Do people look at Independence Day as cheesy? I think so. But it's like a good kind of cheesy. Like I'd like to emphasize that cheesy should not always be used in a negative connotation i think cheesy can be quite a positive thing it's Mm. it's it it's over patriotic and and has moments that are you know if we were being super harsh and critical yeah we probably could tear it apart you know it's like i i feel like and but we don't because we know what type of movie it is it's the it's the us versus them, aliens are bad, people are good, and yeah, let's all rise and band together. And, you know, of course, the crop-dusting pilot is going to, who was claiming he was abducted by aliens, is going to be the, the guy who saves the day. It was very hokey right. fun, like, but we still love it. Like, I'm right. not saying we don't. I mean, at the end of that movie, Goldblum and, and Smith crash in the middle of the desert and they light cigars and walk off. I mean, <laughs> let's be real here. Um and I think this kind of Tomorrow War fits in that same sort of category. Now, there is 
a couple of problems that probably detract it from being something as good as Independence Day in terms of the same type of genre. Mm. Like, um, it does have, it's quite long winded. You know, I've been talking about these short, sharp, they don't overstay their welcome 90 minute films. This one's just over two hours. I think it's two hours 10. Um, and it has two endings um, in the sense that it has sort of a, the end of the second act could almost be the end of the film, the way that they angle it. And uh, yet, okay. um, and, and yet the film then continues for another 35, 40 minutes. And my thing is the stakes at the end of that one weren't as drastic or, or as the characters were making it out to be because of sort of the time traveling premise in the film. And I don't think I'm spoiling too much by saying that. No, there um, seems to be a sci-fi element to this film. Very clearly in the trailer states, people of the past go to the future to fight in a war that hasn't happened yet. Right. Um, and I think it's, it does have quite a few moments where it's like, oh, well that was a little plot, like plot convoluted and uh, maybe some characters have plot armor and, and such. Uh, but it, it's, I think it's just fun, and it's what for what the type of film it is. It does exactly what it's supposed to do, and it logistically makes a lot of sense mm. um, in the confines of its own film. So, the biggest critiques I could have is uh, there's probably a couple of there's probably a two a couple too many characters, maybe too many characters, um, and it does have kind of that army of the dead problem where yeah, sometimes it it does just overbloats some scenes not nearly as bad as army of mm. army of the dead um but overall i was pretty positive on the film um because of i it made cohesive sense everything in the narrative made sense there weren't things that i was sitting there going well that just feels like a teenager writing a film right. <laughs> um but obviously the our controversy Okay, well, the, your, your calling question was the fact that yeah, I gave... Yeah, so I, <laughs> the reason I brought it up, this was like last week in the car, was that you gave this the same letterbox score as another film that I've particularly enjoyed in the last year was Kajillionaire. Mm-hmm. And um, I understand, like, yeah, we shouldn't be judging it based on similar letterbox scores, but I had to call you out in that. Yeah. Because I've heard so much crap about Tomorrow War that I was just surprised that you had it in high regard. Yeah, I... I... And I, I, I'm happy to defend that, and I'm also happy to hear people's critiques, like with any score. Could you and I gave the same score? Obviously, we were talking about this is, um, you know, a film that came out last year that you were very, very high on. Mm. You loved it. Um, and it's obviously very also good. available on, on Prime right now, and I, I did really enjoy it. Um, that sort of conversation would have been a great... Um, it might, you know, this time next year, we might be looking at it in the Decades Challenge, you know? It could... Mm. Um, my weight <laughs> um, nah, and good... you know it's it's got great quartet performance which continues the thread of you know 2019 yeah. 2020 films that seem to have quartet uh, casting yeah um, well specifically 2020 I'd say yeah definitely specifically 2020 for sure yeah um, and I obviously I, I'm a big fan of in particular Evan Rachel Wood um of Westworld acclaim too, which I've mm. talked about her performances on the show excessively in that show. And I, I found her performance in this kind of in the same, um, the monotone disjointedness. She actually does bring that occasionally to Westworld, but uh, you know, she also has the other side of the incredibly human 
uh, nature. So it's an interesting to see that she had this character that was so disjointed, um, particularly because of the way her parents raised her. Mm. Um, and I was a bit. Conf- I'm not gonna lie. The first twenty or so minutes, I was I was so. Um, what is it? Confused? Not confused, but just like. In- intrigued in a confused sense. I think it's confusingly intrigued. Like I okay. I, I like was, you, you weren't quite sure what, what was, was going what on. What was I? What was I watching? Yeah. Okay. Um, just because they were such odd, strange-looking characters, and everything about <laughs> the film was was so intriguing that they had, and then it became very obvious what was what was happening. Yeah. Um, you know, after particularly as soon as they got on the plane, um, yeah, then it yeah. became more apparent. I was like, oh, I can kind of see what this film's trying to do it's this weird very strange it's a film that require it definitely requires an episode and an in-depth conversation yeah um it's very it's very deep and like on the surface because we should probably tell the audience that if you don't know what kajillion is it's essentially about this family of two parents and a 26 year old daughter who are sort of penny pinches and will go to the ends of the earth just to you know make a buck on any day just yeah. to get by because they can't get jobs and uh, I like from that. But they point don't on, believe in getting jobs. I think mm-hmm. that's the. I think it's more important that they don't believe in getting jobs. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a desperation behind it, but then there's also as the movie goes, you realize well, at what point does desperation just become convincing? And what point does a parental figure's influence on a child uh, precede you know any other sort of logic? And I think the film just goes so deep with that, especially as like more cons start to become yeah, prevalent. I, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone. I think the most important thing is they kind of are societal leeches who It's very parasite thematically and in terms of the plot structure. Yeah, who often use their... I would say parasite is, is 100% on the money um, because of uh, their kind of... Like I said, they're societal leeches that constantly use the moral stance of oh, well, we're anti-capitalistic gender and materialism, but mm. whenever they have an opportunity to indulge in some form of materialism, they cave almost instantly yeah. on that and become incredibly indulgent. So really, so like they try and under the guise that they have some morale g- agenda, um, and yet they don't. They, they very much are just people that are too lazy to contribute to society, so mm. they will try and skim off the top to get by. Well, it's it's just fascinating because, and it, you're right, it deserves its own episode. It really does. But what I love about it is you have these these two parents who are trying to live life in their own sort of mindset, which of course, in a world where you need money to live, you know, that is a basic fundamental thing in today's society mm-hmm. that they just don't agree with, or they they don't want to accept the boundaries of those rules. But what is the consequence of having your child grow up with those same values? And instilling them in them, like mm-hmm. is that as a parental parental figure, is that even fair? And that goes even deeper when there's an, let's say an approval or disapproval of uh, certain relational things that happen later in the film. Um, it's just it's all about my favorite letterbox review. This was um, this is all a year ago. Keep my thoughts from a year ago, so it's a little little not as fresh on as I could be. But there was a review where it said Miranda July, the director of this film, it felt like that she gave birth to a baby, looked at it and said, oh shit, what do I do with this thing? And that's what this movie is, <laughs> which mm. I thought was a fascinating little insight. But um, Yeah, I, I, I definitely think it is, it is one to have um, an episode to itself. Mm. Um, over to the last couple of films, 
that I watched in the last week. I watched Jay Roach's Bombshell from 2019. Oh, interesting. Um, I kind of sat on a very similar score to you. I think we both gave it three. Um, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know what to make of it. In all honesty, I was excited to see it. I like Jay Roach. I like Trumbo. I yeah. like the cast. Their makeup's excellent. Big cast. Yeah, the but cast is huge. I was so. I remember because I saw this by myself in a theater. So like, I went in, walked out, didn't really have anyone to discuss it with. And I just remember thinking, like, I don't know if I like this film or not. I don't despise it. I wasn't offended by it. But it was one of those things where I couldn't really tell you what I would have done differently as a director. I, I don't I don't know if the Adam McKay I was camera about say, work would you give, was would necessary. You, I would say, I would say is, the, is the way to improve this film, give it to Adam McKay? Is that, <laughs> that's honestly what I was thinking. I, I sat there halfway through and I was like, this is this because I didn't realize it was Jay Roach directed. I had to right. research it. I was like, this feels like an Adam McKay film. Like I'm watching this, I'm like, this has got big. Well, the camera work is just a complete ripoff. Yeah, the the pieces to camera, the times of cutaways to like almost cutting away to B-roll footage as they're doing. Well, it's so smash zooms and just the way the camera uh, hesitates. Well, he did. I think yeah. he was doing Vice the same year, right? Like this sounds. I think that was no, well, Vice, Vice would have come out about a good year before. Okay. They were in different Oscar circles. Okay. They were nominated in different years, but... So... But this, it's just felt like I a honestly, rip-off, yeah, you know? <laughs> I felt like it was a McKay um, film, for sure. Um, and, yeah, like, that's where I kind of sat in the same sort of boat. I was like, oh, honestly, I feel like this plot might have had a bit more impact if, if someone like McKay had done it. Because McKay always had a really good way of introducing you know obviously there's almost every time a new character is introduced they have their name and then their position at fox um right and almost a documentary that's what it's this weird sort of amalgamation of documentary and and um obviously fictionalized retelling of a story and yeah um, of a true story of a true yeah. story of course um and it was good like i like it was good at like good enough but it's it comes back to at the end of the day look at who your cast is i mean the writing could have been shaky as and, and you've still got a bunch of people that are more than capable of performing a very entertaining uh, uh, piece and I like it's, I don't think I disliked it like I, I just no I didn't, didn't I, think it took me to the same levels as something like even both both of the McKay films both Vice and, and um, Big Short I think were better than this film I think I because that was the whole thing with um, especially with the Big Short why the second time I watched it I liked it a lot more um, and maybe that might be the case with Bombshell as well. And it's a shame because, like, we're only comparing these is because the camera work is so similar. The presentation is so similar. It just feels like a ripoff. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's a bit of a shame because why couldn't it have its own identity? Imagine if you watch Trumbo and it was shot like an Adam McKay film. It just well, doesn't make it, sense. It could have been shot... I would say this film could have almost... It could have benefited maybe even more from a spotlight pre- presentation. Yeah. Like that sort of style and direction. But I guess the scope and the amount of... People, the amount of personalities we meet in this—it's dizzying how many different characters we meet. Yeah. Um, and they like to kind of con- concentrate it to Margaret Robbie, Nicole Kidman, and, and Charlize Theron, yeah. to those three main women. But there are a lot of other people, that, particularly when things start to escalate, who just get introduced. Like, uh, and the only real point they're being introduced is mostly because we're trying to get the microcosmic. Uh, perspectives of every uh, person that works at Fox, but right. it's like when it escalates, they're like putting names up on the screen. You're like, you're not going to remember any of these names. Like, 
they're not characters more they're more just I, like these are real people and this is their, what they yeah, thought well, at I the think, time I think it's more just for like the people who do know this story like oh okay this is this person this is this person I don't know if you're meant to memorise every single no name. absolutely I, I don't think you are um, I think it's mostly yeah it's just to be like these people were there when this happened and these were their ideologies I kind of want to rewatch it mostly with performances because mm-hmm. I like performances and I thought Margot Robbie was really great and especially I mean the Megan Kelly performance is excellent as well but like I, 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 I would say yeah, Charlie's Throne was my favourite right. part I, of it I kind of just want to rewatch it so this is on Prime is that what you yes, saw it? Yes, yeah okay Prime. I had a big Prime week yeah 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 apparently and I kind of I'm kind of excited about rewatching it even though I know I was totally lukewarm to it and I kind of walked out being like I don't know what to make of that I guess three stars I gave it a three star review thinking I might change this a week from now and never changed it we had to see Mark Duplass so, in it just casually oh yeah just <laughs> playing Charlie's I am uh, what's partner? their name from um from Ted who's also in the new season of Atypical that just dropped I forget their name I'm sorry but um Anyway, doesn't matter. It's a good mm. cast. It's a very good cast. It's a very big cast. I think yeah. it's Kirsten Dunst in it for a little bit too. I, I don't remember. It's, it's so I many people. Maybe, maybe. You're right. It just plays like, I think it's one scene, but it's like, it, it was very, I had to double check it, but um, I think Charlie Saron was easily my favorite part of the film. Mm. Um, and, and John Lithgow's performance was, right. was actually really, really nice to see him in something where he, although playing an absolute creep, yeah. um, he, his performance was really... It's really nice seeing him in a, in a bit more like of a, a main billing sort of sense. Um, I think it must be it must be tough because obviously, like we said, this is going to get a lot of McKay comparisons. And then, you know, the year before you have Vice where you've got Christian Bale putting on an absurd amount of weight and, and going full um, immersed into that Dick Cheney role. Mm. Um, so it is very interesting that this film is so... Um, in that same sort of uh, aesthetical style, um, and I'm not saying McKay has a as a copyright patent on that style, but no, but it's very clear, and it, it's beyond the point of an, in of uh, influence. It's it's at the point. Well, you where start it's to lose your own directorial point. voice, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Because like, well, what is a J. Roach film now? Because that didn't feel like one. Mm-hmm. You're right. It feels like an Adam McKay. The fact that we're talking about him so much in a film that he has nothing to do with, as far as I'm aware of. Yeah, it's not a good. It's not a good thing for Jay Roach. No, absolutely, hundred percent agree. Trombus still a better film, <laughs> for sure. I can agree with you on that. And the only other thing I watched this week was American Pickle. Not going to uh, on that yeah. one too much. Uh, that's just been put on Netflix. That was a. I don't know. It just felt like it was just. You know, I think it was co-written by Seth Rogen, and you can kind of see the the seeds of of Seth Rogen's writing in it and. I don't know. It's him talking to himself for ninety minutes. It's a pretty paper thin plot, and it's kind of it's a harmless film. Like it, you're not going to be offended by watching it, but you're really yeah. if you're going to try and get an alternative, more provocative reading out of it. I'm sorry, it's not there. Like I remember, we tried to see that in the cinema, and and they told us that the screening that we booked didn't exist. Yeah, that really annoyed me. I was like, you calling me a liar? Bella. Yeah, it was, you know, obviously. <laughs> we just didn't end up watching anything that night. No, we didn't. Yeah, because we had a look at the other stuff. And it was like Antebellum was on and stuff. It like was that. like the week that restrictions lifted yeah. after the first COVID lockdown. There was nothing at Hoyt's. Nothing. And that is casually all that I've watched in the last oh, just, week. Just relax. <laughs> Nine films. Yeah. Oh, well, the one, the one I will give a quick shout out to, I find, I watched this on Saturday. So they had the um, Revelation screening. It was the only Rev film that I caught 
this year. Okay. Which is kind of annoying because I've got all these passes now that I ended up using. Um, I mean, that's a long story in and itself. Maybe I can use them for ne- the next revelation mm. if if the year's not on it. It probably is, but um, I finally saw The Last Horns of Africa. So I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. This is the third film from Halo Films, their first documentary. And um, very happy to, repl- uh, to report. I was going to say please. I'm pleased to report. That's the sentence mm-hmm. I was trying to build up. Um, that it's actually excellent. Excellent, excellent doco. Very confronting about the uh, the trade of rhino horn in Africa. And the thing that was so shocking, because it's a very local film. You mm-hmm. know, local director, local producer. They did the Q&A at the front after the screening. And so I was like, oh, well, it's a local film, but it's all shot in Africa. And it's all about issues that are mostly regionalized in Africa about the trade of, of rhino horn. The amount of access that they got was just mind-boggling. They got full coverage of a raid against one of like the poaching kings. What's the mm-hmm. term? Um, i got a term here um, for the character. Yeah, the rhino kingpin of uh, Kruger, which is Petros Mabuza, who's actually since been assassinated only a couple of weeks ago. Wow. Um, so the, and, and not the only one who appears in this film who has since died in very suspicious circumstances. So there's a lot of uh, tickled versus tickle king vibes in this where they could definitely do a bit of a, a short sequel because the story's ever ongoing. How good was tickle? Oh, very good, very good. But um, yeah. But in terms of the access, you know, they get access to a, a, a rhino care sanctuary that's run by Petronel, uh, Pe- Petronel. That's it. And then you sort of follow her journey. She's taking care of these rhinos, and in particular, a um, a baby black rhino named Four, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite funny. Um, and that you know has its own sort of emotional arc as you go through that, and you learn how much she cares for the animals. Um, but then it sort of bounces back between these other people, and then you've got Don English from the Kruger National Park, who he has, like, this team that pretty much protect the rhinos that are out in the wild from poachers. And it's this whole escalation. But then they get the other side as well. They have interviews with actual poachers, and they're talking about the financial side of it and why they do that. People who've actually become um, sort of inside agents who were poachers and decided to quit and now are in the inside making deals so that these raids can continue. And, and like, this is all completely covered. There's no... Um, that sounds th- awesome. It's incredible, and there's there's not a, a scene that's missed. There is nothing that's missed. Like, oh, they couldn't get that footage. Like, no, 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 no. They got everything, and it's just like so intriguing and really confronting. Like, I know there were some people. I was like, oh, they might want to see this, but they might generally not be able to stomach it. There's some pretty mm-hmm. shocking visuals in here, especially because be, yeah, because yeah, what what these poachers do to the rhinos, even though they're just after the horn, a lot of them don't care. They usually leave them for dead or they basically eat parts of them and then there's this like these disgusting carcasses left that you just stumble upon and it's really insane um and one of one of the best parts about it is that it sort of deals with the the sort of moral uh, moral ethical questions that it dealt with so the sanctuary actually dehorns rhinos themselves and we actually have this extended scene where we see the process happening it actually leads to them having to resuscitate the rhino, which I've, it was very, um, for Sama vibes, which that's a brilliant doco in its own right in terms of a resuscitating scene that really gets you. Um, but then it goes into the question of like, well, why are they dehorning rhinos? And is it ethical? Because like, you really shouldn't be doing that. But on the same token, it's for their own protection. It's so that someone else doesn't do it in a less humane way and then end up killing them mm-hmm. as well. And then you also have the, uh, the cities, uh, or cities, I think it's cities, who they're the ones who legalize or illegalize the trade, and it becomes a whole debate about well, if we legalize it, does it become less incentive for poachers to actually do it? 
And then that's like a whole debate that goes back and forth between all these people that got interviews. It's just yeah. incredible the amount of access they got. Well, it's a very similar debate with a lot of those sort of things about legalizing yeah, drugs like, and everything. Drugs, particularly. Um, yeah, it's like, do you legalize it because then you're um, preventing the illegal trade and potentially worse stuff, and that way you can really monitor and, and control well, the exactly. bottom line. Because the idea is you would take the value down. Absolutely, and then it, becomes, it would... a co- becomes a competitive free market. Yeah, it, it was. It just everything was covered, everything mm. you could think of, and it's, you know, a and that's, that's that's when those kinds of documentaries, particularly those kinds of documentaries mm. that don't take, when they come to the, like, obviously, you know, the we've talked about with documentaries, the best kind of documentaries, uh, disguise themselves, the chameleons of objectivity, like mm. they still have subjective agendas in them, but. They get to the point where they cover so many different sides of an issue and explore an issue from every different angle that you almost lose the subject, not lose the subjective agenda, but you you really develop such an intellectual understanding of the issue and yeah, you can really yeah. shape your own opinion and take away from it. And it's not... it Because that way then it's pushing away from being propaganda. Exactly. And and that, and that's to your point. It's like, yeah, this film clearly has a stance in that it sucks to kill rhinos and dehorn them and sell them, but it still interviews poachers. Yeah. And it still gives them a, a seemingly unaltered version of their thoughts on what they're doing. And yeah, yeah. it portrays them as, as assholes, mm-hmm. but it's still their own words. They're the ones bragging about it, how much money they're making yeah. per horn. And it's like, well, that that's their stance. That's why they're doing it. Absolutely. So I thought there was an excellent doco, the tinge of proudness in it because it is so local. Mm-hmm. So that's great. And, um, I would love to go see it again. Well, I'll take you to Backlot. We can watch it that when it screens pretty, more in the next cool. week. Right. Um, but yeah. Got anything no. else for us? Yeah, so the rest of it is sort of tied to the film of the week. I will... There's one I'll talk about. So I saw Fr- Brighter Frankenstein. I'll talk about it during our Frankenstein discussion. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fair enough. But I also watched The Invisible Man. The 1933 version of The Invisible Man, I should clarify. Well, of course, we did the 2020 version episode 61 i want to say yeah, we did and uh, we neither of us were really big fans of it we actually had a lot of, a lot of issues you know, with we won a stale popcorn for last yeah, year didn't it yeah did no, yeah you're right no because i was thinking about tenet but no you went it went to the invisible man um which is interesting because so this film the 1933 version um a lot of similarities to the frankenstein adaptations of course this film was directed by james whale who we're going to talk a lot mm-hmm. about in the next you know few i guess minutes of the show but there was a lot of similarities but oh it's raining down hard oh Zeke. it's come it's come the storm we, is coming Zeke. we had a we had a really good run there oh there it goes that was quick the the weathermen don't know what they're talking about Zeke. um <laughs> so there's a lot of similarities between this and james wales other films in terms of the idea and this is the literal quote from the invisible man meddling in things that man must leave alone mm-hmm terms of exploring sympathetic monsters as results of experimentations either by their own experimentations or their creators um they have short running times you know between this brighter frankenstein frankenstein it's all about 70 minutes 75 minutes they're very short um hysterical screaming women uh, especially in this and bride in particular really <laughs> they really bug me and that's just the james whale he really finds those performances funny i find them very annoying but that's okay um, and frankly, intriguing opening scenes in terms mm. of just sort of starting on a situation and you kind of having to catch up with, oh, what what is this character? What's their deal? Why are they doing this? So I thought that was all really great the way they did that. Um, and, it, and again, you know, see, 
some of these things I'm going to leave until the discussion because mm-hmm. it's such a, tea, a a key tie to Frankenstein that it's almost spoiling our Frankenstein discussion by bringing some of this up yeah. ahead of time. Um, so I'll skip some of these notes. The thing I just want to say, in terms of comparing this to the 2020 film, one of the things the 2020 film gets right, and you can't dispute this, is the genius in that it creates tension from having these wide shots of empty spaces you could be staring into an empty kitchen or having a shot reverse shot between Elizabeth Moss and an empty chair. And it creates tension because yes. you've established like the invisible threat of the film. And it's it's great filmmaking. There's a lot of other issues with that film, but that's not one of them. This film doesn't get the opportunity to do that because you're following this story from the invisible man's perspective. And it's also, I don't want to say inherently more funny, but it does take that, you know, okay, we're going to follow this character and sympathize with him more. Um, but he ends up doing all sorts of crazy things. It's by the end of the film, you were laughing your ass off of how absurd the pranking becomes because he ends up just like pranking people as the invisible man to the point where he's derailing trains full of people for, for the lols. <laughs> and it's so funny. He's just killing people for the pretty, jokes. It's as compared to the other one that was, you know, there's way more serious stories of domestic violence and yeah 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 and, and uh, this one's just like we want a really high kill count for the lols so it's like i almost enjoyed it so much because it was unashamedly just like an evil prankster by the end of the mm. film <laughs> which you know you could say kind of gets in the way of maybe trying to sympathize with with this character because like it's hard to sympathize with someone who's like derailing trains and blowing mm. people up but um, on the same token, it's just like a really fun film. And the effects work of creating the Invisible Man is just ingenious. Like, like it's obviously not perfect frame. You can sort of see where the compositing stuff comes from. But just the fact that they did it on 1930s film without green screen, it just, it the results speak for itself. It looks incredible, especially mm-hmm. when it's like floating objects or the bicycle's riding itself. Like that stuff especially looks really great. Um, as well as like the layering when he's unbandaging his head and his arms coming in and out of view, but the the cropping is still like still works. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just mind blowing. And I think between this and King Kong, especially Universal were just ahead of the game in effects work for film. Yeah, so, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's um, is is unfortunately yeah. As we'll branch in, I only managed to catch the film of the weeks, but um, obviously this sort of talk is is really interesting that. He had three r- really prominent films in just the mm-hmm. first half of the 30s, which is kind yeah. of crazy to think about. Um, and like you said, you really pointed it out there with this being a 33 release. Um, yeah, and then Bride was with, 35. So, And in line with, with King Kong also being 33 with that visual effects expectation. Mm. Um, it, it, it will be interesting. I do have quite a few notes from the film of the week to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's probably time. I mean, we normally do a career section, but I haven't got anything to add. Um, I'll quickly mention, I'm, a few weeks ago, I mentioned The Fathering Project, um, like a three-minute video that we shot down in Dwelling Up. That's actually out now. So, um, obviously, Clicker's not really sharing any of that content anymore, but it's on my personal Facebook page. So, if you re- if you had access to it, you really wanted to see it, it's there. Mm. Um, well, what am I talking about? It's, I shared it. It's on The Fathering Project Facebook page. So you can just go on there for or their YouTube channel. It's all on there. A three minute video we did. So um, 
Um, but that's that's all for me. So uh, yeah, and drama as well. It is time for us to move into our film of the week. We are doing our last mm. film in our well, the twenty twenty one version of the countdown through the decades retrospective. It's the 1930s, and it's a director's corner. Jake, who's the director, and what are we watching? We're, of course, talking about James Wales' Frankenstein. Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to, uh, well, We've warned you. An obsessed scientist creates a living being from body parts, not realising it has a madman's brain. Easily mm. the biggest blunder in cinematic history. <laughs> um, Wait, what, what, what was that last part? Well, Fritz drop in a brain. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I have a massive issue with that, actually, but yeah, we'll get into that. Cool. We'll get into that. <laughs> well, obviously, we are talking about James Whale as a director. Um synonymously probably one of the first what western world horror filmmakers if now that we're talking about it really when we think about it yeah, yeah being exactly 31 33 and 35 being his works so there, um, there is there is a pre- dracula predates these films it was a different director who <clears throat> was actually going to do frankenstein and but was they asked if he could play the monster and he's like no nah, i'm not doing that so directing role into james well but you're right in terms of pioneering the genre for the western a thousand percent, yeah, mm-hmm. totally. So I think that uh, that's pretty significant, and obviously this film had a last minute burst in our poll. So here we are talking about. Oh it. yeah, <laughs> I forgot um, about that very close race between this and Gone with the Wind. Yeah, so but, um, yeah, um, <laughs> like you said, a seventy minute film beats a four hour film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the two. So um, it's really it is a really interesting film. Your initial takeaway, Jake. Love it or hate it. Yeah, so I saw this... The first time I saw it was in February of last year, and I actually talked a little bit about it in episode 58. Make sure to check out Uncut Gems episode. Um, that was that was a lot of... that was I listened back to the episode. That was a very fast-moving episode because between you, me, and we had Jack on the show that day, um, <laughs> there was like 50 films to talk about, so we, we kind of just like snapped through them real quick. <laughs> Much like the pacing of Uncut Gems. Yeah, exactly. But um, I do remember at the time, I liked it enough, but I was very disappointed that it was not a faithful adaptation of the novel, which we have right here mm. on my desk, the original, which I, I think is one of my favorite pieces of literature of all time. And I still will put my hand and be like, I want to make my own adaptation, a very faithful adaptation. And apparently the 2004 miniseries is, but of course this film is not. Um... The second time around, watching it the other day, I think I came to appreciate it more. I think I, I appreciated that, you know, 70-minute runtime, it really streamlines a lot of the characters. And you have characters like Fritz, who's basically Igor, not in the novel at all. But the thing I realized was, well, the novel came out in 1818. This film came out in 1931. That's over 100 years of interpretation, stage play performances, stage play adaptations in terms of the writing, yeah. new characters, taking characters out. So... With over 100 years of history, I get it. I get it. 
this is not necessarily the most faithful. It would be interesting if it adaptation. adheres more to stage play adaptations, I would say. Because yeah, if you really so. watch the film, it, it definitely... And this is quite a prominent feature, particularly, you know, 30s cinema and, and pushing even to the early 40s. Um, obviously, we've talked about this a little bit, that particularly at this point in cinema, uh, particularly sound cinema's life mm. cycle... The talkies. Um, we had only had sound in cinema for, at this point, three years. And um, it's, it's intriguing to think about because... It, the generations of, of writing had to change because, you know, as we've talked about, um, even today there are films that, you know, we have these stage-to-screen adaptations that still fail with this, having a script that's too grounded in its stage play roots or even its, uh, its, its previous, you know, written literature roots that it doesn't quite translate over into the, the cinematic version of the film. Mm. Um, and... You know, so this means that, yeah, you know, if um, in terms of an 1818 novel um, into a 1931 piece, like you said, there's over 100 years between those two there. And there probably was a good chance that um, they probably drew more uh, creative inspirations from stage play adaptations than the actual direct book literature. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, especially in terms of just, you're right, streamline, because that's what they would have to do on stage was streamline it. Yeah. There's not, you can't have as many scenes, as many locations, really as many characters, because logistically this is becoming a nightmare. And, you know, most of the novel is told in reflection. It's about Frankenstein being discovered, um, I think, like in 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 the ice, essentially, and he tells the ship captain about his story, and it goes into vivid detail about the things that in this film they brush over, like, oh, he revived a dog. And in this film, it's just like a line, or yeah. his entire history with with uh, Elizabeth. It's just a couple of lines, and yeah, she's in the film, but mm-hmm. um, it, it's very much like okay, this is the situation. They're they're engaged. He's too committed to his scientific research. All right, then now let's have the plot proceed on. So I, in terms of there being less detail, in terms of fitting everything to a seventy minute story, yeah, I appreciate. I actually did appreciate it a lot. I think it made a lot of sense. And you're right, even just financially in terms of a production contract context it would make more sense for a film made in the 30s to not want to be overly uh well, complicated i guess is the word to put it yeah what's well, also a gamble i think um you know we we talked even at the start of the show of the controversy and there were certain regions that wouldn't even play this film because of its mm. um you know sort of moral morality compass and such and um, so obviously they knew this was a very bold decision. And at this point, we also talked about the fact that the horror genre didn't exist. So nor did it's technically it's target audience because we'd never, it didn't really have right. a target audience at this point. Well, well, the, the, the ads that they would play in the posters, it was all about terrifying its audience. So even though they probably didn't have a name to the genre, mm. they very much said, this is a scary film. We mm. want to scare the crap out of you. So in mm. terms of a target audience, I guess they kind of had one. That's mm. how they would promote these films, but it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I think it's, it, yeah. Um, it's definitely a grey area. For sure. Compared for sure. to, like, horror films nowadays. It is strange seeing a film that's 70 minutes long, when you think about it. Even now. It's like you watch... They now. go by so fast. They go by so fast. <laughs> Everything was moving at, like, a an absurd pace. Like, right. 
Um, it was funny after because I rented this on YouTube because this is the only place you can actually currently get this film if you don't own it. Yeah, you can't stream it. And um, um, I've got I'm gonna give a little shout out. I got the complete legacy collection, mm. which this is eight films on Blu-ray. I got it for like forty bucks or something ridiculous. Mm. And it's got Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. It's got a bunch, so uh, there you gotta go. get onto it, everyone. Um, so yeah, it's I was to this on on YouTube because um, yeah, it's currently the only place this is streaming. Mm. Um, and I found it really interesting because it's obviously like I said, tight seventy minutes, and it's like the movie clip previews uh, make up about twenty five minutes of the film, and I'm <laughs> sitting there, I'm like. <laughs> I'm like, wow, this is like nearly half the film right here. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably could essentially watch the whole Frankenstein film through those clips because that's how tight a tight a window it is. I've noticed when I'm watching some of those clips, usually like A Quiet Place. I was watching those clips leading into A Quiet Place Part Two, the the movie trailer clips on YouTube, and what they do for films like that that are obviously longer than seventy minutes. They have like pretty close scenes in succession, but then they like a big forty minute chunk. They just won't post any scenes mm. from that period of chunk with this i imagine it was a bit more spaced out yeah yeah, yeah. it was um you pretty but i just found that really interesting in yeah. terms of um <laughs> being like wow you could watch like nearly half this film just through these clips and it's yeah, all like yeah. it's probably some of the most well-known scenes and in, in, in my opinion yeah. some of the the best scenes in the film um for a, a plethora of particularly technical reasons mm. um i think some of the biggest takeaways i have from this film um, is it definitely does feel more true to a stage play adaptation because of obviously how much time we spend in the castle and then in that castle, how much time we spend um, in just a couple of rooms yeah. over it, which is, you know, is the equivalent of, let's be you know realistic, this is a TV studio they're, they're in right now or a studio, big studio hall and they've probably got four or five well-developed sets. Yeah, well, the, the very clear sets, yeah. Um, like, okay, this is the downstairs of the castle, this is the upstairs of the castle, the laboratory... Um, you know, this is this is the Frankenstein house. And then they have their outdoor sets as well. Like the graveyard's clearly a set. Looks mm. great though. Absolutely. But, um, um yeah. I think some of all the castle stuff's pretty magnificent. Mm. Um, particularly the uh, science lab where this, this all undertakes is is just remarkable in yeah. physical product design and production design and, and it it blew me away a little bit, mm. um, with some of that stuff. And it's it's always funny because it's like you know, camera movement was such a, a lot of the, we have to be really honest here. It's like, this is, you know, only three years into sound cinema and, and technically only 20, you know, only just over 20 years into just cinema completely. Mm. And obviously in terms of writing, we hadn't had that generation. We've talked about, you know, sort of like the, the forties brought that generation of pure screen writers to, to fold people that were, um, whereas back in this time, and I, I talked about this when I watched King Kong for the first time, you can clearly see they didn't quite know how to write films in that refined, focused way that that following decade had. You know, it, it and you can start to see the develop the positive developments towards the back end of the '30s. Like it even starts as early as there. But this real early '30s cinema, it's like we we have to start writing characters that they you know have to think with their with their faces rather than, you know, like rather right. than saying what their motivations and it's that, that's the difference between a uh, theater and, and screen uh, with the, but there are quite a few scenes in this. And I think this, you know, plays into particularly, you know, Frankenstein's monsters performance where we actually do see him emote 
Yeah, because yeah. he's obviously a, a, a mute, you know, pretty much mute character. So, well, yeah, that I mean, that's something like Boris Karloff's performance is just next level. Yeah, and you're right. It's mostly because it is has to be very expressive with the face, and especially before the makeup, um, which is just incredible. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously it's like, oh, is it realistic or not? It's like, no, it's about the iconography and the 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 relevance. I mean, when you look at Frankenstein's monster's face or the creature's face, you know what that is. It's so distinctive. It's so iconic. And I love that if you actually look it up, you can see James Wales and um, looking up the makeup person here, Jack Pierce, who's quite prominent on monster movies. They um, There's a bit of a back and forth on who actually contributed what to the look. And who mm. should t- take the credit, <laughs> which I thought was quite funny. Um, uh, it's leaning towards James Whale having more input than people were letting on initially. That's mm. sort of where the argument ends, I think. But performing through that makeup Absolutely. is not easy. And I think that's a really important um, thing to talk about because, like I'm saying, it, it's that show-not-tell um, mentality that didn't really come in prominently until you know we started like i said started to push into that late 30s early 40s cinema so for, to see it as early as, as this monster who pretty much has to solely express a lot of his mentalities through just you know the way he, he shows because he can't tell us his character motivations and his body language and demeanor was really ahead of its time um you know because a lot of the characters around him are very obviously because they have the ability to say dialogue they do have you know, still really good lines in there, but there are also lines that are just very on the nose, very much. This is now, you know, plot over story stuff. Um, and I, I find that to have like Karloff's performance being just so impressive for mm. that time. It's like, it is really, it is a great performance from him. Well, what you have in terms of the behavior, and it's very different from the novel. You actually don't see much of, the creature's behavior prior to him actually learning intelligence and learning speech. And that that's actually mm. really, I don't want to say early, but the majority of the novel, you do have the creature articulating and having demands. And, the, and there's mm. some, there's some plot issues in here that I found funny because we understand the creature to never really de- develop in, uh, intellectually. He never learns how to speak, at least in this film, he starts to learn speech in, in Bride of Frankenstein, which is some of the best parts of those, of that film. But what I found interesting is that there's this childlike um, curiosity that he has. And it makes perfect sense because he was born yesterday, you know, and he, he doesn't know how to speak. He, he only reacts to what he's been given. So why you have Maria, the little girl we talked about earlier, who offers the flower and he sort of has this smile, this like curious, heartwarming smile mm. and to play with the little girl. But then he generally grows up having to react to aggression you know, people shoving, you know, the, the the torches in his face and then, you know, oh, sit down or, like, attacking him and he has to respond in tandem. He has to mm. attack and be aggressive back and that's why... I mean, that that's the whole point. That's the whole nature versus nurture argument that, you know, they did retain that from the novel. That is one thing this film retains is its, its gothic look, which we'll get into in a minute. But in terms of the behavior of the creature and is it nurture versus nature, mm-hmm. was he born like this? This is why I have a big problem with the abnormal brain thing. Because I think that completely destroys that argument in a bad way. But I love the idea of, of he is a sympathetic monster because he is not aggressive for the sake of being aggressive. He's not an asshole. Yeah, and it's particularly why that scene is so. And and maybe that's because the, maybe the world wasn't ready to have 
um, these sort of grey area antagonists. Yeah, maybe we hadn't quite arrived to um, the fact that oh, you know, inadvertently the protagonist of the film is 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 Doctor Frankenstein, and right. Frankenstein monster is the antagonist technically. Um, but obviously, like you said, these scenes where he's apparently, you know, we hear that big monologue by the, the university doctor being like, this brain was it was a murderer and a violent and a horrible person. Yeah, um, I, it's basically, I hate that so much. <laughs> it's the psycho equivalent from, what, 30-something yeah, years yeah. after where it's like, oh, this, this is why Norman Bates was absolutely 100% this horrible person. <laughs> and you're just like... Well, thank you for taking any form of um, my critical thinking Subtle, and, and, take, and, and take from this and and making it very clearly, um, no, he was bad. And it's like... Yeah, well, that's that. when they when Fritz takes the abnormal brain and they very clearly label it, it's like, well, then you're right. Like, what's, what's the point? What's the point? If you're suggesting that if he grabbed the normal brain, that the creature would you know, immediately become like this societal, yeah. wonderful, beautiful creature that everyone just accepts, then what is the point of this movie? A hundred percent. That really bugs the shit out of me. <laughs> and I think that, that that's, and that, and it actually detracts from obviously what, you know, Karloff's doing with his performance because he does make you care about the monster. Yeah. The monster gains sympathy and yet really the monster should be just horrific from the start, be a monster from his violent creature because it can't help it because its brain was the wrong brain and it, well, exactly and that's such a what's well, contradictory at that point it is it is it detracts and i i think what that is is that's potentially could be just a pro- product of the writing or that could be a product of a producer being like no no a monster he's a monster he needs to clearly be a monster we mm-hmm. need to clearly um and it's funny because that scene in terms of its construction and particularly um i was gonna well bring it i'll bring it into sound mixing in, in this okay. film cool. quite a bit. That scene is very crisp. I love the way the camera moves into that scene um, and some of the camera work and stuff. That, when, when he steals the brain, is that what you're talking about? Um, the intro into... Uh, before, oh, the very... Fritz, before Fritz comes in. Um, okay, the, okay. The monologue, um, there's a there's Oh, nice I know what you're talking about. Yeah, in. no, that, that, I, was, some, I was shocked by the camera movement in there's that. There's some great movement in Yeah, I was like, scene. wow, okay. Um and um, obviously then it leads into a, a stagnant shot with Fritz moving between the, the room and really kind of just drops the glass for no reason other than he's incompetent. And he well, there's from, a noise, isn't there? Is there a noise? A, a little noise and yeah. he drops it. And I find it really interesting. I, I don't like that character that much, to be honest, the Igor Fritz character, because mm. um, his performance is quite inconsistent too. Like he has to walk around with a limp and stuff. And yet in that scene, he goes from that weird look with the with the walking, the half walking stick to kind of almost perfectly running out of the scene because he almost, he just didn't quite stay in character or, or maybe he just couldn't physically do that crouch walk with it. It just was very odd to me. It was like, okay, well, it feels a bit inconsistent. Yeah, look, I, I know, I know that that sort of the ego hunch that I think this film originates that specifically. Mm. I know that that's sort of classic and there's a scene when he's walking to the door of the castle and the lighting is like this really low light that's, casting this massive shadow mm-hmm. onto the wall and like just that gothic style that they're doing through shadows which at this time was unheard of for an american mm. film you know this is why we talk about there's no american horror films yeah, on paper a, until yeah. after this film is because this was a german thing to do was to light films like this and yeah only america doing it with these films now but to to fritz's character especially because he kind of dies so quickly he's like the first one that mm. the monster actually ends up killing 
I agree with you. I really don't care for him at all. Yeah. He, if anything, he is just there to enable the plot. Like, he's, he's the one who has to pick the brain. The wrong brain picks the wrong brain. Yeah, and... because Henry Frankenstein wouldn't grab the wrong brain. Exactly. He wouldn't be that stupid to do that. Yeah. I, but oh, then it also stuff, comes back Fred. to... Wouldn't when Fritz gives the when he gives the brain to Frankens uh, Henry Frankenstein mm-hmm. clearly see <laughs> it says abnormal brain yet still chooses to put what, that was brain that in. on the jar or was that on the yeah table? it was on the jar oh, it was <laughs> it was on the jar <laughs> they both had normal oh, no. brain abnormal brain and it was like very clearly one of those things that they didn't want to vocalize but they might as well because it was in such big obnoxious text <laughs> it was like a bloody Captain America Civil War level yeah. of text on screen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, which they brought back. They did. They brought that text back. I did not notice that. Um, we'll talk about that next week. Uh, but, um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, but I, like I said, I just, I hate that whole Fred, um, because yeah, the whole, do you want to show that the, the monster is not inherently bad and through Carlos performance, you see that. So mm. it's just an inconsistency when it's like, oh, this, this brain predetermined this bra- this person to be evil when they grow well, up, like, you know? And at that point, it's like, and that's the most, yeah, it, it does completely detract. And it's funny that that one scene really does feel like that particular scene, although technically quite impressive, you know, they've got a bit of foley mixing, a bit of ambience mixing, which I'm going to talk about the kind of inconsistent sound can particularly the uh, sound mixing in this film. Okay. Um, because there are moments where the sound is, is brilliant and I'm blown away by how clean and crisp it is. And then Mm -hmm. there were moments where there was just, there was just absence of sound and it was very jarring and particularly, I've got a comparison. That that could be, this film does have a history of, um, a lot of, because of the controversy stuff that we talked about earlier, there actually are some scenes that I think just have disappeared forever. So I think those inconsistencies with sound, and there are several scenes where you notice the film reel just sort of cuts a few frames ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think that's to do with how the sound was like physically printed onto the film. Like it's just a different way of yeah. recording sound a hundred years ago. So I think those kind of issues I'd probably chalk up to just film restoration. That okay. it, it just lost over time. Um, it, but that's an chance. assumption. That's an assumption. Uh, yeah, there you and you might be correct. Um, I just think it was the interesting the 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 layering difference. Like sometimes it would be particularly foley and ambiences would be very layered in one scene and be quite absent in others. Right. Um, and that left me a little confused and perplexed. Um, the biggest example I can think off the top of my head is, um, obviously you take the it's alive sequence. Mm. Um, and you compare it to Frankenstein's interaction with Maria. Um, oh, okay. Well, that's one, one's two... way more quiet than the others. Yeah, one really... Ins- but one of them, like, um, this is what I was playing, particularly into sort of Foley layering and soundscape creation. The interaction with Maria is, is almost just completely, I think, just um, the voices and... I think one sploosh sound when Frankenstein sploosh <laughs> Maria into the into the <laughs> in the pond, the pond. Um, and that's pretty. And then of course his re, his reaction. So it's totally just dialogue technically, and that one foley sound effect. There's no uh, ambience of the countryside or the bush. There's nothing, which right. I thought was very. And it starts when um, Maria's father leaves for town, and mm. they're just talking, and there's next to no. Um, layer and I thought it was, it was I was bl- 
blown away by the and that might be to do with the fact that maybe one of them was because it was purely exterior and wasn't shot in a studio maybe the the maybe they couldn't do as much foley work potentially because obviously mm. that that scene is actually outside. That yeah, that definitely that is a, that one. That is on an on-location shoot. So maybe that had something to do with... Because obviously it's very early my, sound My mixing. guess is that it would be in the fact that... Um, you know, we talk about... I have a friend um, who is a sound engineer and he's done some big films. I mean, he... he like, we haven't talked specifically about 30 sound mixing, but the way he talks about sound just like pre-digital age was that it was an absolute nightmare and that the the amount of layers you had to work with was well, they touch, so they touch on a little bit in singing in the rain don't they with the yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The very roughly and they they even talk about the pain in the butt that that is in in just an in studio situation so maybe on on location it just was it yeah. was just too difficult cuz to you're add. right that might be i don't think it's i think some of the stuff on the streets of the of the cities, mm. I think, I'm sure that's real as well. That's they're, they're way it might too have been expensive. easier to it might have been yeah a lot easier to hide microphones in in those sort of street situations. Yeah, but but what you're talking about is layering specifically, mm. and yes. I just think in terms of the post production options they had to layer mm. dialogue in with ambience, I think it it's shocking how little options they had. So it's, it's, I I don't ping the film at all for any of those kinds of because I understand. I mean, it's 90 years old. It's yeah, I, I wouldn't say it hindered my perform- like watching right. experience. It's more right. something I just wanted to point out, address yeah. because you know this is the interesting part about talking about thirty cinema, and you know I'm sure a lot of people that listen to this show or, or people just in general, I don't know many people that watch films this old. Yeah, this um, might be the oldest film I've ever seen. I don't think I've this ever. This be the oldest feature I've ever seen. Oh, that's yeah, that's probably um, true. Because we probably have... Seen, I mean, we saw Great Train Robbery, which is like... Sure. In full? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And that one with the steps, the Russian one. Oh, yeah. I'm just thinking, did we watch those in full, though? That's the question. I mean, oh, we've we definitely de- seen... Definitely clips. watched Great Train Robbery in full. Okay. Okay. So, it, it's really... Um, but for feature, I think this is the earliest feature I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, even like A Trip to the Moon, I haven't watched that in full. That's oh, only like 14 it. minutes, but... So, yeah. Um, but... It's and I think it's really interesting to talk about that stuff because you know it's like most people I talk to it's like I actually have asked them I'm like what's the oldest film um, you've ever watched yeah. or what's like what's honestly right now if you were to casually watch a film what's the how far can you go back before you're kind of they just don't they start to tune out and most of them yeah. don't go past the sixties. Um, interesting. Like i don't know many and i find that really interesting because yeah obviously you know you're missing 30 years and some of the best decades of film when you're not going further back than mostly late 60s too like yeah you know it's like i think someone was discussing with someone the other day where it's like uh they were like oh yeah like a space odyssey is just it feels like it's it doesn't feel like it's made in 1968 no. it feels like it's made you know in the 90s and it's like yeah I think, I mean, I think, I think that might be Kubrick and, and stuff like that, but it's really interesting because it's like, you try to be like, oh, you know, one of my favorite films of all time is a film made in 1964, you know, mm. it's like, it's, it's, and, and then it even back into the 40s. So it, it is interesting to discuss, I think, with how amazing these films can be because people, you know, most people might have watched Wizard of Oz when they were younger too. So, you know, we did that with well, the camera. Yeah, that's the thing because I've seen Wizard of Oz from such a young age that from, from, pretty much the earliest point in my life, I had at least always seen a 30s film. Mm. So I never like restricted myself the, in terms of that time. The key time. distinction is that I, what I'm saying is is people will never 
go to casually watching these films. Right. Um, it won't be like, like if you and I are sitting there watching browsing on Netflix or you're sitting with the, the, you know, the people in question I'm talking about and you were like, oh, let's watch The Wizard of Oz or let's watch Frankenstein. You know, some people would, are kind of apprehensive to watch films that yeah. old, which is such a shame. Well, it's I, like, I remember we were going through Stan, me and a friend a couple of years back. I wanted to watch 12 Angry Men, which is 50s. Mm. And they were like, eh, not in the mood tonight for it. Yeah. Um, which is fine. You don't need to be in a mood for it. But yeah, you, at a certain age, film becomes just too ancient for some people to watch. And it's fascinating, man. Yeah. And I think that's the importance of doing these these countdowns because we can actually we give ourselves an opportunity to make ourselves explore every prominent day, decade of sound cinema. Mm. And I think that that's really important um, because, you know, like films like this, I would have never watched without... Um, and I, I consider myself... Yeah, I'm a f- huge film buff... Even for me to watch films from the 30s, it's, like, not always on my go-to motivation. Like, I don't know yeah. if, if this wasn't on the show, I don't know when I would have watched this film. I'm sure no. I would have got to it at some point in my life. Yeah, for sure. But it, I love, and that's what I love about doing this this 10-week period in yeah, yeah. particular. Because, you know, I, I get to finally see, you know, we've talked about the Frankenstein's monster being this now icon, you know, the way the makeup was done and this mm-hmm. iconic look. And it's weird to think that it's like that look, which has now been carried over to absurds amounts of not only just other Frankenstein films, but horror movie films or, you know, parodies or what Yeah, well, what pop, pop culture in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like seeing scenes like the It's Alive scene play out, you sort of sit there and go, well, I've heard this line and people recite this line without even watching this film. And Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's just so fascinating. I think we talked about it with last week with Pinocchio, with some of the things with Pinocchio, with like the nose growing and, and Yeah, it's like, like how iconic those things are, but they come from such an old yeah. place. And some people don't realise it. I mean, you know, when I remember I was watching The Wizard of Oz, and this was like maybe when I was like maybe 10 or something, mm-hmm. I literally couldn't, I literally didn't believe it that I was watching a film from 1939. I just did not. I was like, oh, maybe this is the re-release VHS from the 80s. That was when they brought the colour in. The colour didn't exist mm-hmm. before. Like, I literally did not believe it. So there was some, even at that young age, I, I knew that even as a timeless film, I was like, well, technologically, that's not where it was at, was it? And of course it was. That that is the film that came in nineteen thirty nine. Of course, it's a very advanced film. Almost mm. no films in that time looked as good as The Wizard of Oz, and there's reasons for that. Mm. You know, these films are obviously way cheaper, and it was a bit more of a risk at the time to do a you know quote unquote horror film. It wasn't mm. you know the genre didn't exist yet, but it was a gamble. This kind of film, and it paid yeah. off wonderfully. Yeah. Uh, but that's why the film looks really rough. And the restoration isn't the greatest in the world, and it's obviously shot in black and white, mm-hmm. and you know there's all those reasons. But like you said, the iconography of it, the it, his performance, Car- Boris Karloff's performance, carries through time. Yeah, and I think that's a hundred percent. I think that that's that is easily the biggest positives that come out of this film. Yeah, because unfortunately, like we both agree, I think. Um, f- there are just some really frustrating, and I had I think I had a, quite a few issues, similar issues with um. King Kong um, mm. that just I just think we weren't quite at the point of being really good film storytellers at this point like and it's like we weren't at that level where we would start to you know when we had our noir movements our movements in the 40s and the 50s you know you know bringing up things like 12 Angry Men where we've got a stage to screen adaptation there that's just mm. magnificent so yeah. it's like we just 
they were still in the the early years of working out the balance between uh, a showing and not telling, and um, yeah, well, you know, we can see adjustment st- period. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just, I mean, this is the birth. These are the early days. It's it's why, um, you know, for some people watching films like these it can be, uh, you know, kind of cumbersome and difficult to motivate because they mm. don't want to watch something that they know took you know. You know, it was ninety years old, and look how how far we've come in those ninety years. I think yeah. that that's the the. But that's why we need these important. These films are so important to look at because we can see where this all started and yeah. where we well, evolved. Well, that, that's why prev- like, pre- preservation is so important. At least, at least to me, it is absolutely. You know, and these kind of, and that's why like Criterion Collection when they do their restorations of orphans, like I admire that so much because you're right. The history is important of it. Yeah, the history of it is important. I should say grammatically correctly um the comparison i wanted to make to the invisible man earlier when i said it was almost venturing too much into this discussion was that that film does the same thing where the serum that the guy uses on himself to become invisible they sort of hint later on that they use that same serum on dogs and the dogs went mad and crazy so that film sort of has that same excuse of oh this thing as part of the experimentation is objectively evil or it, it makes you behave in a way that you otherwise wouldn't. And I was like, well, why can't the invisible man have a similar thing where it is about nature versus nurture or it is about, well, that one would be more like power corrupting, right? Yeah, well, exactly. And you could say that the, the pranking that he does on people, it's because of the way people treat him and people treat him like crap in the movie, but he's also kind of a dick back to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, he pushes a guy down the stairs because he tries to evict him. And then he just goes back to casually working on his experiment. And he's, like, surprised when the cops yeah. are like, you just threw a dude down the stairs. we got to arrest you, mate. Yeah. Like, it, it gets really muddled in terms of how much sympathy should I have for this guy. But then they used the serum. The serum did this to him. It's the exact same thing as the abnormal yeah. brain. It just... James, wait, what, what, what's going on, mate? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know that might just... Like I said, that might be that um, we weren't quite ready to have uh, anything beyond good versus evil. Yeah, um, maybe. Which is a shame, because, like, I feel like the novel did it so well but literature and early film is different and i think that but that's it yeah and that's the the whole point of the prominent movement of the 40s with no, the noir movement is where we started to go okay well maybe our protagonist is not the most likable person our antagonist is 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 the more likable of the two mm. and um that move that was kind of a counter movement and that probably came from this decade's very clear there are bad guys and there are good guys and if the bad guys have any form of humanity, we have to give a reason as to why they are incapable of that humanity, right. achieving that humanity. And um, I think that maybe that might have inspired that sort of counter counter writers movement in the forties, potentially. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because I feel this feels like so distinctively its own thing, mm-hmm. um, and especially because it, these things are based on. I'm much less attached to the Invisible Man source material. Of course, like with, mm-hmm. with Frankenstein, I love the novel so much, so it affects the way I watch the film in so many ways. Absolutely, but, um, I don't know. It's just uh, you're probably right, and it's probably the reason why it, they went to those lengths to sort of an extra layer of justification for the for the character's behavior. And I just I'm not a big fan of it. No, I don't like the idea that the monster has an abnormal brain that defeats the purpose in my mind. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I might talk a little bit about Bride of Frankenstein just quickly. I know you didn't end up catching it, but it is. I think it's worth talking about simply because it is still a James Whale mm-hmm. production that he kind of stayed the course, if you will. And um, I sort of, so like I teased earlier, I actually didn't like it anywhere near as much as 
this one. I mean, with, with this one, I kind of grew to appreciate the deviation from the novel. Mm-hmm. I was even more offended by it because in the second one, because it just sort of went even further along. The whole idea of a Bride of Frankenstein, that's part of the novel's original story, is that the monster blackmails Frankenstein into creating him a wife. And this is another example of premeditation. Mm-hmm. That's another example in this film is when he attacks Mary, when he breaks into the house and attacks Mary, is that out of spite towards Henry Frankenstein? Is that a premeditated move? Because until mm. that point, the creature is not intelligent enough to figure out where this person lives and attack his wife in spite of him. Yeah, well, yeah. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll buy it, you know, I'll buy it. But I feel like the film continues with those deviations where the monster is not the one that demanded the bride in this case. It's a second scientist who is also smart enough to make his own creatures, which that comes out of nowhere. And he's there's a scene where he creates like these little miniature humans, like little fairies, if you will, like in terms of the size. I was like, what is what is any of this? You know, I just wasn't a big fan of it. I just wasn't, and it was even more hurtful because the film literally opens with per- Percy and Mary Shelley talking about the creation of the novel. I was like, so you're going to put the actual author in the film as a character talking about the film as if it's her story when it's clearly a deviation from a mm-hmm. story? And just a lot of that bugged me. You know, I, I don't know. I just, I wasn't a huge fan. I, I In terms of the, the gothic aesthetic, the representing German expressionism, mm-hmm. um, in terms of the sound, even the soundtrack, it's all excellent still. But I just could not, I don't know. The story debugged me. But like I said earlier, I, the scene when he actually does learn to speak, he meets a blind man in the forest. Mm-hmm. And they actually have a couple of scenes where they're bonding and he teaches him how to talk. And he's like smoking cigars, which is such a great seeing the creature smoking cigars and like immediately liking it it's, <laughs> it's funny it's cute but um i don't know i wasn't a huge fan of the of bride in all honesty that's fair but um i like this one way more no worries do you have anything else you'd like to add before we jump into highlight scenes um yeah not really i've sort of covered all my uh, those were, uh, as much as i'm making fun of the film and those issues i still generally like it a lot i love the the basic premise of the whole thing yeah i you know? i I didn't dislike it at all. Um, yeah. I think there's it's a piece of cinematic history and and has its, you know, obvious it has obvious flaws, but these flaws are coming from a ninety year old film. So it's you sit there and you're just like, well, how far can I really critique the film that honestly probably set the groundworks for better works to come? Yeah. Um, it it is a little like I said, but that could be production and societal context influencing film that we had to have very clear bad and good guys. So the abnormal brain or the the serum that you know you know made them go mad or or you know inadvertently convolutingly creating a bride solely just because we need the title of the film's called Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> basically. Well, that's some random character comes out of nowhere and de- and demands it, yeah. as opposed to the original novel where the creature gained such self-awareness that they realized they needed a bride and that was like a demand well, they just, wanted. It just goes to show that uh, source material was sometimes neglected even as early as a 1931 film. <laughs> it's because a woman wrote it. That's why everyone hates it. <laughs> they won't respect the work and no. just make a bloody true adaptation. Well, it's Just a, do it. <laughs> time to jump into uh, a highlight scene, my man. Mm. So uh, what was your highlight scene and why? I think I'll give a quick shout out to the tracking shot of the, of the father carrying you know, his dead little girl, mm. Maria. I think that was actually a brilliant use of camera. And you see, as he's passing people, you see their reaction as they slowly realize 
what they're looking at. I thought that was a great shot. Mm-hmm. But in terms of highlight scenes, I think it has to be the creature's introduction when he walks through the door backwards. See, so you, you don't get that. You get that just that slight extra waiting time before mm-hmm. you see his face, and you get those hyper close ups. The, the cut-ins. Yeah, the cut-ins, yeah, which you got to imagine for an audience in the 30s, that would have been terrifying. Yeah. Because you would have never, you've never seen it. What's all sold in, in Karloff's face, facial expressions too. The, yeah, the, the dead, dead eyes. and Yeah. yeah. Um, I will have to say, I'm going to go pedal back. It has to be the It's Alive scene for me, um, mainly because of the sequence of shots in that scene. Mm. Um, I think the coverage in that scene is just, obviously they knew that was kind of the money scene. Yeah. Um, it's an for, important scene, yeah. Well, obviously it's, it's probably the first, the, you know, the quintessential end of the first act, really. Mm. Um, and... I think for me, what blew me away was that big tracking shot that just sent it off to the the ceiling. Oh, the yeah. light show. What it was, it was an amalgamation of obviously it's very clearly a, you know it's obviously in a studio, but the amalgamation of of lighting effects. Um, that was the first ever use of thunder sounds in mm. in cinematic history. So there's the sound layering, the coverages of all the characters in the scene. Um, and then leading to the, the, that, that very slow press down and to see that hand move cut in. What it was was a collection of all motivated, really cr- creative shots and leading, obviously, with that uh, iconic line at the end. Yeah. I think it... That's yeah, it, wonderful. It, was, it showcases the verticality of the cast as well, like mm. how it sort of extends up well past yeah. the camera's view and you get a good look at it there. Which, obviously, the only other way we really get a gauge of how the castle works is from those exterior sort of matte painting shots that mm. they they have in those uh, sort of earlier works. And what I think it was is why I liked that scene so much is it really was the amalgamation of, of, of sound, cinema, and the potentials that we were going to give ourselves in years to come. Right. Like that film... That particular scene pretty much hits every department's nail on the head, mm. bar maybe makeup design, which obviously you know, like you said, is is obviously in the preceding scene. So um, we have a mixture of performances and and probably one of the better um, line deliveries from. Um, I know we've talked about a lot of, of Boris Karloff, so oh, but you um, want to talk about well, Colin Clive? Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, it's probably one of his stronger scenes too. Yeah. Um, which is funny because Google credits him as Victor Frankenstein, which is technically his real name in the novel, but then they named someone else Victor and then called him Henry Frankenstein. Mm. That's just a weird note. I don't know why they did that. Very Maybe, and this might come back to, because he's very clearly the protagonist of the film, maybe they didn't want to give him a foreign name. Yeah. They, and that sort of stuff. But they gave someone stuff. else the name Victor. It's, this is weird. It's weird. But it's that... That's that strange sort of like thing with Western cinema is they very clearly, it's like if he was the protagonist, he very clearly needed to have a Western name and Henry's a very Western name. So even though it's set in the middle of Eastern Europe. <laughs> yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what, yeah. That sort of stuff, that's you, that, that it's kind of, honestly it's, be my guess as to why they changed the name. It's kind of like when um, Ann Lee changed Bruce Banner's name. Oh, wait, no, no, no. No, it was Bruce Banner, but it was Eric Banner in the original Hulk series and now being played by Eric Banner. It was played by Eric Banner. Yeah, but I think think the name of the Hulk in the original TV series was Eric Banner. But then they changed it to Bruce Banner when Eric Banner played Bruce Banner. And now it's Bruce Banner. Yeah. That's very strange. Why would they do that? That just confuses me. (laughs) Eric Banner is Eric Banner. 
no get, worries. That's probably why, yeah. Well, the 1931 Frankenstein is currently out on YouTube for renting. Um, that's pretty much all you can catch it in terms of streaming. Yeah. Or you could be like Jake and get the James Whale directorial sort of collection. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not the James Whale collection. Both his films are on it, but... There's the Frank, so it's the Frankenstein. It's, it's the Frankenstein complete legacy collection. That's what it's what's called. The, what's the other one you got? Didn't you get one that had? A, oh no, you didn't rent. I thought there was a director's collection. I you. rented Invisible Man okay. on YouTube. That's what I. Invisible Man isn't on the collection. Um, but there's eight discs in here. It's a normal size Blu-ray. There's eight discs in there. I'm holding it right. <laughs> You're holding it. Ooh, cheeky cheek. Well, why are you holding that, Zeke? I'm gonna go ahead and read. Some of the stuff that's coming to streaming and cinemas in the next week. It's actually a pretty dry week in terms of streaming. The only real thing I've, no- I've noticed is that the final part of the Fear Street trilogy comes to Netflix this week. So if you've been following that, that's the first Are you going to watch all three? I, I want to because yeah. it is an event and I'm kind of late on the event if, if the last one's already about to come out. But yeah, it's cool. I like the idea of them putting out a trilogy within like one month but you're right it should have been in October mm-hmm. I don't know why they didn't do that and also coming to Netflix this week is uh, the Australian Netflix services I should clarify is all eight Harry Potter films so if you've never seen Harry Potter <laughs> if you're one of those people you can go ahead and coming new to cinemas this week we have Karen Gillan who leads Gunpowder Milkshake which sees a dangerous assassin reunite with her mother and lethal associates to take down a ruthless crime syndicate in order to protect an eight year old girl so I'm quite excited for this. I've always loved Karen Gillan and a lot of stuff, and she she's been promoting the hell out of her on her Instagram for the last like year, mm-hmm. or I guess two years when before COVID, because yeah, they're all filming stuff as they were making it. So um, I've been following this for a long time. So it comes to cinemas next week. I think it Hoyts on the fifteenth, although I couldn't really confirm that. It was a bit the website was being a bit weird last night, but been a bit been a strange week because now yeah. we're out of all the restrictions too. So yeah, that's time's true. Probably very much subject to change. that. That might be part of it as well. Uh, also coming out is Nine Days, which sees a reclusive man conduct a series of interviews with human souls for a chance to be born. I love how vague this sounds. It's directed by Edson, uh, Edson, Edson Oda, and is actually executive produced by Spike Jones. So that made a little bit more sense to me when I read that. <laughs> so I'm very curious to see that. Uh, Final Account is a documentary that sees exclusive interviews with the last living generation of Hitler's Third Reich. And uh, Luna is also holding a couple of special events this week. Uh, starting on Sunday the 18th, they're going to be doing... I think this is a monthly thing. They're going to be doing the Charlie Chapman Collection since it was 100 years ago. Wow. I guess this month that they put out The Kid. And uh, that's screening on the 18th. I'm keen to see it. I've never seen The Kid before. Um, but it's like once a month. I think they're going to do Modern Times at the start of next year. So it's going to take a little while to get through them. But I think that's their plan. I guess it's too much to ask to do it like every week. Uh, and also a members-only screening this Tuesday the 13th of Shiver Baby, which I'm very excited to see. It sees a college student attending a Jewish funeral service with her parents when awkward encounters ensue with her sugar daddy and ex-girlfriend. Uh, very uncut gems vibes I'm hearing in terms of an anxiety-inducing cinema. So, uh, Emily has that, uh, that feeling. Yeah. Nah, but I'm very excited. I'm glad they're playing on the big screen, so I might catch that if I can. We shall see. Uh, but that's it. That's all that's coming to streaming and it's cinemas. It's a bit dry every week. A little bit. I've, next to Stan, Disney, Apple Prime, I just got another next to them. Nothing, nothing spoke out to me, Zeke. Mm. Nothing quite hit the bill on the on the Jake calendar. That's true. <laughs> well, that has concluded our countdown through the decades retrospective wow, that's for it. 2021. So it is cool. time for that, us. That, Zeke, that hit me. 
What? When you said, and that's it for the countdown. That kind of hit it. me. Yeah. Oh, we got sad. To, uh, we'll be back in 22 <laughs> for it. So we'll be we'll be pushing 25 at that point. Oh, God. <laughs> Just to scare you on that one. You'll be pushing. I'll be well into it. <laughs> oh, that's true, yeah. That's right. You're older than me. Jesus um, Christ. So it's time to move and Don't you ever into- forget it. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to move into what we're doing next week on the show. This is our first, obviously, since the countdown started, this is our first in-cinema experience. Oh, wow, well, yeah. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching Black Widow. I used to have nothing. And then I got this job. This family. But nothing lasts forever. I heard you had to leave in a hurry. It's never easy these days. So what are you going to do? I've lived a lot of lives, but I'm done running from my past. I know you're out there. I know you know I'm out here. So we're going to talk like grown-ups? Is that what we are? What brings you home? Taking place between the events of Civil War and Infinity War, Natasha Romanoff, also known as Black Widow, confronts the darker parts of her ledger when a dangerous conspiracy tied to her past arises. She also sees David Harper and Florence Pugh, the love of my life, Florence Pugh, of course. And uh, we've already seen this film, Zeke. Yeah, we saw it this week. Yeah, we saw it. Pretty quickly, just in case the lockdown decided to mess with us, we've already caught it. Yeah, yeah, it'll be yeah. interesting to see. We have quite a few people that we know that have seen this film in the last week yeah, too. Cool. So, who knows? Maybe I'll try and wrangle one onto the show uh, <laughs> for that take. I might select the right one for that. God, you really, you really want to win an argument in this one, don't you? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. going to bring back up. No, uh, you see, that's the, and unfortunately, yeah, it's uh, we're not going to talk too much about it. Uh, we're going to talk about that film obviously in the film of the week conversation but we finally get to really dump into the three mm. mcu f- film uh, shows so yeah because loki wraps up this week so we'll well this is my pitch to you z because okay. yeah loki wraps up next week obviously it's a big episode because we're finally off the decades countdown mm-hmm. i'm thinking maybe we just make it sort of a marvel exclusive extravaganza we talk about so. we finally sit down and talk about obviously wandavision falcon winter soldier loki the Black Widow film, mm-hmm. and and I reckon that's it. I, if we, I reckon we can even hold on to some of the stuff we watch the next week. Maybe we can. I think I, I think that's that. honestly the best way to go ahead with yeah. this show because um, that way we can keep a nice focused conversation about that in the first half of the show, and then the second half of the show, yeah. and maybe even talk about particularly um, as we um, saw before Black Widow's screening commenced. Their plans for the next three years that have been clearly, oh, yeah. Lily, um, we can talk about sort of where we really think that's all going to go and yeah. whether it's actually worth going to be worth well, that, following. That's inter- yeah, because that, that Phase 4 trailer they put out for anyone who knows what it is, they played that right before the movie in the theatre, mm-hmm. which I, I, I know why they did it. It was interesting, but... Well, I guess we'll cover all of that next week. Absolutely. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Black Widow. <laughs>